Amen. You guys may be seated. Thank you, Jason and worship team. Hey, Rick, can we do something real quick and bring up the At the Cross um, section of that song on the uh, screen up here as they're singing this song um, and as we're worshiping God? Uh, I'm reading through this, and spoiler alert, this is where we're going to land today. Uh, And I'm excited to get there and excited for the text that's going to lead us there. But I want you to look at that. At the cross, you beckon me. You draw me gently to my knees. And I'm lost for words, so lost in love. I'm sweetly broken, wholly surrendered. Um, We're going to land there today. So spoiler alert on that. Um, But welcome to Solid Rock. If you don't know who I am, my name is Jeff. Uh, I am not the lead pastor here. If it's your first time, I get the honor and privilege of working with a team of people here responsible for um, leading out, tasked with leading out, uh, the mission of the church. Um, So uh, Jason's out of town. Um, I did my best uh, to bring him up here with me. I got my boots and pants, even have a similar haircut this morning as he does. So I'm doing everything I can for those that were expecting Jason and ready for him to teach this morning. Um, I'm excited we're going to get to dive into chapter 3 of Romans. Um, To kind of recap a little, last uh, week uh, Jason covered chapters 1 and 2. Um, chapters 1 predominantly be, being directed to those that are outside of Ju- Judaism. Uh, chapter 2 being directed to those that are inside Judaism. Um, chapter 3, we land on, um, we land on a really, uh, gosh, the first verse is just, it's, very, it's almost provoking of Paul to write. Um, and as I was studying through and reading this, uh, this is probably one of the, for me, uh, uh, and I'm not uh, a deep theologian by any means, for me is one of the deepest or, or one of the most difficult texts I, I actually tackled. Um, in my flesh, part of me wanted just to read verses 1 through 8 and leave you all to wrestle with that and move on to 9, um, but we're not going to do that um, this morning. We're going to kind of break this up into a few sections. So open to Romans chapter 3, uh, keeping in mind chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Jason talked about last week. Um, we're going to start with verse 1, and um, well, we'll read verse 1 and 2. We'll let you all get there for a second. All right. Then what advantage has the Jew... Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews are entrusted with the oracles of God. I'm going to stop there for a second. What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So quickly, uh, you have to step back just a few verses in chapter 2. It really sets up. Paul just got through going through circumcision and talking specifically to the Jews. What's happened here, the Jews have taken circumcision, and they've allowed that to be a defining purpose of who they are, and it's, been, it's become about the physical act. Once they are circumcised, then they therefore are part of the Jewish culture, and therefore the law is really there. They follow through that, and they feel righteous that they're living under that law. Um, originally, that circumcision, when it was first instituted, back in Deuteronomy 10, 16, Moses actually said that the circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. The Jews have stepped away from that. Uh, Paul, the last whole chapter, has pretty much slammed the Jews, kind of written some really difficult things, even saying um, one who is circumcised but doesn't follow the law becomes uncircumcised, right? And so these difficult texts where the Jews are like, what do you mean you can't physically become uncircumcised? So Paul's driving the point at that it's about the heart, and it needs to be about the heart. It needs to be about the heart condition. And it says previously in chapter 2, in the last five verses there, he talks about how one who is uncircumcised but yet follows the law has the right to judge and look at someone who is circumcised who doesn't follow the law. And and don't get hung up on the judging part of it. The point Paul is making, because we've known that no one can follow the law exactly how it is, but the point he's making is circumcision is about something different than what you've made it. 
Okay, you, the Jews have become very prideful, very arrogant in, in, in the fact that they've been God's chosen people and that they are circumcised. And it's a part of this that really defines who they are in God. And so Paul is trying to challenge that with them. And he steps into this verse one and he makes this very provoking statement to, and it's intended for that to provoke them. And he's like, so what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of circumcision, right? Um, and so this next verse in verse two, as we get there, uh, for me, I didn't grow up in church. Uh, you know, I started going to church uh, at the age of 17, really on a regular basis, 16. Um, but I've always been told that, um, you know, that everyone is equal in God's sight, right? And, and everyone is, uh, is the same across the board. And so when I read verse one, and, and I was reading that this week, I, I assumed verse two, if I had never read that before, would be like, well, there's no advantage to being a Jew. And so I really had to wrestle through this. And that's why I say it's one of the most difficult texts I tackled because Paul says much in every way. So he's saying there is an advantage to being a Jew. So I had to step back, and this morning I want to step back, and we're going to look at that for a second and, and say, what does that mean to have an advantage? Or what does advantage even mean? You know, Paul gives a list, and he says to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, now, just so you know, that list isn't completed. He said to begin with, right? So in chapter 9, uh, when we get there in the, in the series, we'll actually go through the other items that are um, an advantage to being a Jew. But he says they're entrusted with the oracles of God. And, and entrusted with the oracles of God or the word of God or, or the scriptures, um, not meaning that they were just entrusted in holding them, but they were actually entrusted to communicate um, the scriptures. They were actually entrusted to teach uh, the scriptures. Now, knowing that and looking at where Paul just went through, obviously we know that the advantage he's talking about with a Jew has nothing to do with a salvation advantage. You know, we can go back and read all through chapter one and two, and we're going to land here in chapter three, um, that everyone is equal when it comes to salvation, that everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're going to hit that later. So we know it's not that. So then what is it? And I, and I was wrestling through what's the best example to give? Because for them to have the oracles of God, that means they knew the truth of God. They knew um, the teachings of God. They had this before anyone else. Um, and so I started thinking, like, what's a modern-day example we can use? And I got to thinking of uh, maybe um, someone who grows up, uh, a child who's born and grows up in a, in a very godly home. Um, you know, uh, mom and dad uh, staying together, um, going to church, and, and not that anyone's perfect, but they're living uh, this life that's really focused on serving God, and they're bringing their kids, and they're raising them up in the ways of, of the Lord, and they're bringing them to church. So that child, when compared to someone who grows up in a family that maybe has gone through two or three divorces, and, or maybe a child who lives on the streets, or is in an abusive relationship, or has never been to church, has never heard anything, you might look at that and say... The one raised in a godly family has an advantage when it comes to um, this, this Christianity with this uh, you know, um, godly lifestyle, with being able to surrender to God. And the only advantage is not that they have an easier way to have coming in salvation, but they've been around it. They've lived with it and in it. And so the advantage isn't that they have an easier uh, way into salvation because we know it's the same way. We have to surrender to God to get to that point. We'll, we'll land there at the end of the chapter. Um, but the advantage is, is that they, they are in a, in a better situation to understand it than the person who's never been around it. And so as we look at that and, and, and as I struggle through the advantage and what that means to have an advantage as a Jew, um, that's really what Paul's talking about. We're going to know that it's nothing else as we move on here, um, that the advantage in the Jew is strictly that God chose them as his people and that he gave him their oracles and trusted them with the word of God and the teachings. And so they grew up with it, knowing it, knowing the full Old Testament, knowing that, as Jason covered last year, all of the Old Testament ultimately points to Christ. So when you compare 
the Jews versus the Gentiles, that's the advantage they have. And so it is an advantage, but it, and the, and the advantage didn't work. The advantage did not work, and that's in your notes section. The Jews had an advantage. It didn't work. We're going to look here in verse 3 and 4, and this is where we find out it didn't work. Well, what if some are unfaithful? Does their faith, faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul quickly says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justifier in your words and prevail when you are judged. And so... You know, the question being, okay, so if they have an advantage, and the advantage was they were given the oracles of God, well, what happens if they were unfaithful to the teaching of the Word of God? What happens if they were unfaithful to the very oracles they were given? You know, does that mean that God then is not faithful to complete His promise? You know, the question being, so the advantage is there. The advantage is because they they had it, they knew it, but yet the advantage didn't work. They weren't faithful to God's Word. They weren't faithful to what it was teaching. So does that then mean, and this is kind of, you'll see Paul here, he's asking a lot of questions from a human perspective. He's going to say that in the next verse, as a matter of fact. But he's saying, so does that mean God's not going to come up with his, he's not going to be faithful. He's not going to be faithful to what he promised the Jewish people. You know, he promised them a Redeemer. He promised them a Savior, a Messiah. And so the question would be from the Jews coming back, well, well, does that mean God's not going to be faithful if we weren't faithful? No, by no means. Let God be true, though every man were a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. See, the thing is that we have to remember, God's sovereignty is not dependent on man's actions. God is sovereign no matter what. It doesn't matter how we react to what God says or does or how we react to the Word of God. It doesn't matter how we react in traffic and at work. That does not drive God's sovereignty overall. God will remain sovereign despite your circumstances and despite your actions. And it's a place that we have to come to. Uh, and it's not an easy place, but it's a place that I have to come to on a daily basis. Despite what I do, that's not going to change the faithfulness of God. And Paul's encouraging us in that right here and, and saying that his faithfulness is going to be true, though everyone were a liar. We step into verse 5 here, uh, verse 5 through 8. We're going to read this. Now, this is kind of written in a conversation, um, and obviously they didn't have cell phones back then, right? So he's not like talking on the phone and goes, what about this? What about... So Paul's kind of anticipating when they read this, what's the questions going to be? Or he may be going off of questions that have already been asked of him. Um, we'll see later that the, he was being accused of, of false teaching here. Um, so he steps into verse 5, and so the question is, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? And I speak in a human way. And so let's, let's tear that down for a second. First, uh, just to get this out, and it says I speak in a human way. This isn't saying that this scripture is not inspired by the word of God. Paul's saying that this is a human perspective and a human approach to God's sovereignty, to God's righteousness. That's all he's saying. So, so this question is based from a human perspective. And, we, and as I'm reading this and as I was studying this, I had to remind myself of how many times I come in and approach something that I don't grasp of God, but I approach it from a human perspective. And so this is a challenge for me and a challenge for others this morning, as, God, as Paul's going to obviously say, by no means that's not true. But I also look at that verse and I think, man, that sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar to, to people I know, people within, within uh, you know, different churches and within uh, people I grew up around. You know, when, when I was in um, Weatherford, uh, at Weatherford, I went to Weatherford College and 
um, we, you know, very active in the BSM. And, you know, this very thought, uh, although I wasn't as familiar with these verses at that point, this very thought was expressed through multiple people. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, so if by living in sin, by living in an unrighteous manner, ultimately that just shows how much righteous, how righteous God is, because our unrighteousness shows the opposite of God's righteousness, then is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So they're, they're, what he's saying is, well, then God shouldn't, you know, God shouldn't be mad at us if ultimately when we mess up and we live unrighteously, all that really does is amplify his righteousness. That's the question there. It's a question of God's righteousness. Is, there, is, it, is God allowed to be wrathful? Is God allowed to have judgment within a righteous, as a righteous God? Is that, is that allowed? Um, so he looked at that from a human perspective, um, and, and he answers it, by no means. For then how would God judge the world? Now this is key. For by no means, for how would God judge the world? So remember, as Jason talked about uh, the audience and what's going on in Rome now, and, and the Jews have come and gone and come and gone, and now they're back again. And, and so obviously this text, and starting from the very first section, the very first verse there is, what is the advantage of Jews? So he's speaking to this Jewish culture. And so he's not just making a statement that God, obviously it's not correct because God's going to judge the world. How can he if that's correct? He's making a statement that the Jewish people would fully grasp. So you got to remember, the Jewish people, they're, they're not only uh, knowledgeable in the Old Testament, it's a way of life for them. They understand the Old Testament backwards and forwards, and especially the theologians that he may be talking with and uh, that he's anticipating these questions coming from and the leaders. Um, they're going to understand fully. So when he says, how will God judge the world, he knows that's directly going to remind them that the entire Old Testament has a theme of God's righteousness judging evil, judging sin, judging unrighteousness. And so the question is, and, and, and this is Paul, he's alluding to the fact that uh, back in the Old Testament, obviously Jew, the Jews and God's people, they were like, well, God's going to judge unrighteousness and it's all people that are not Jews are going to be considered unrighteous and God's going to judge them because of his righteousness. So that's what they understood and they're stepping into this and Paul's like, well, how would that be the case? If you guys are unrighteous, but yet you're saying God shouldn't judge you because ultimately that points to God's righteousness then how would the whole Old Testament be true in that God's supposed to judge the world and judge the unrighteousness in the world? So in verse 7, I love this, uh, verse 7, uh, um, they repeat it. Again, does this sound familiar? They, they find a loophole, they're trying to reword it, trying to be slick. Um, the, the response would be, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So through my lie or through my sin, if God's truth, through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory. So through my sin, ultimately, God's glory is going to be shown more. Why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And then they take it a step further. And why not do evil that good may come? Why not do evil that good may come? See, we have to be very careful trying to understand and grasp the gospel of grace. And here's what's happening here. Paul's been preaching the gospel. He's been preaching that Christ died, and we're going to get to this in a second. He's been preaching grace. He's been pre preaching God's grace for us, and they're not getting it. 
It, it doesn't understand in their human perspective, how can God have that grace for, for anyone, for everyone? Because I, it just doesn't make sense. If ultimately we sin and it leads to God's glory, I could, I could grasp that, that, well, then in that case, he wouldn't condemn me as a sinner. I, I could understand that perspective, but you're telling me that God will judge all the unrighteousness, and you're also telling me that I'm unrighteous. Yes, sometimes we try to overcomplicate things. Sometimes we try to look at, at these truths and we try to make them more than they actually are. And so this morning, when I, as we're these first eight verses, and we're trying to unpack this, and it's very wordy, it's very back and forth, and uh, man, advantages and not advantages, I'm here to just challenge you and, and really just to say to you that it really is that simple. It really is that simple that, that God's righteousness can do both. And in your notes there, you're going to see both salvation and judgment are part of God's righteousness. The gospel, the message of the gospel, the gospel message does not exclude God's judgment of evil. And so the title of the sermon being the duality of God's righteousness, and it's a hard thing for us to grasp. That's a hard thing. So... You know, we, we, we struggle in different ways. Every, well, how can that person who obviously is not sold out and surrendered to God and, the, and the, the grace of who God is, and, but look how successful he is in the world. How does that happen? How is he blessed with that? And, and, and how, does, how does the righteousness of God come upon me for my unrighteousness? And I can't even believe that God would save me from the stuff I've done in my past. These are things we struggle with on a daily basis. And Paul is strictly saying, hey, yes. Both salvation and judgment are a part of God's righteousness. And we're going to see how that lands out here later. But the gospel message does not exclude God's judgment of evil. Don't overcomplicate this. Constantly on a daily, uh, weekly basis, uh, there's a verse that I memorized a long, long time ago. I, I don't do a lot of scripture memory. I, I should definitely do more. I, I want to really write it on my heart and, and, uh, and let that lead me through the day. But there's a few verses that just I can't get rid of even if I wanted to. Um, this one being one of those. Isaiah 55, 8, and 9. If you're taking notes, I'd ask you to write that one down. Because as we struggle through the duality of God's righteousness and how it applies to both, you have to understand Isaiah 55, 8, and 9 where God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For my thoughts are much higher than your thoughts, and my ways are much higher than your ways. Going back to when Paul says, I speak from a human, <laughs> I speak as a human. Sometimes we've got to pull the human perspective out of it, and we've got to put the faith perspective into it. You've got to understand that there's a faith that you have to have in understanding God's righteousness. It's not an easy concept, but it isn't a complicated one either. It just is what it is. And instead of trying to figure it out and trying to justify it and trying to come up with a, a thesis paper on how it works, sometimes we just got to go, hey, it works. It, it, it's there. It does both. God's scripture cleanly, clean, uh, clearly says it does both. Now, the gospel message does not include God's judgment of evil. We're going to read the next few verses here, uh, verses 9 through 20. Um, Paul's going to go back and remind there's definitely an evilness. Uh, there's definitely a sinfulness. There's definitely um, something that, has to, that you have to be pulled away from. You have to be led away from. Um, God's going to make, and Paul's going to make it very clear here through the Old Testament scriptures um, that we're all under sin. And we're going to look at that in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. So again, this is answering that the, they had the advantage. 
So are we better off as Jews? Well, no, the advantage didn't work, right? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. I'm going to read through this and we'll come back to that. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Their venom, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And he goes on here to say, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Through the law, since through the law, the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So all the way back in verse 9, he makes a statement and then he basically comes in. And again, remember, he's talking to the Jews, right? That's why he goes back to the Old Testament. They're, they know this inside and out. And these scriptures, when you break them down, you actually start realizing some of those, they're, they're out of Psalms. Some of those are actually, uh, Psalms 15, a couple of them come from there. Those are actually directed towards the Gentiles. We know this for verses above that. Um, some of those are out of Isaiah and, and uh, the bottom half where they're directed towards the Israelites. So, so Paul is making the statement that both Jews and Greeks both are under sin. Now, under sin, and, and this is a, another concept and it goes back and forth and you know, people have different stances on it, but it, I, I can't help but land um, based on other, other scriptures that Paul's saying that we as humans, we are, we are born, we are sinful. It's not just that we do sin, right? It's not just that. Look at Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verse 3. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but basically it references that we are by nature children of wrath. So by nature, um, by, by the organics of who we are, by the birth, we are children of wrath. Colossians 3, 6 refers to us as sons of disobedience. Not just, you know, we disobey, we're sons of disobedience. As if, you know, Piper makes a statement as if that means that our father is actually disobedience. We are raised as disobedient. We are raised in that. So, so Paul makes this statement that both Jews and Greeks, and let's just call it what it is, every single person out there is under sin. It's who we are. It's in our nature. It's what drives us. We are sinful. He's saying, Paul's saying here that we do not, we don't, we just don't do sin. We are sinful and we're under sin. And so through the Old Testament, he goes to show how everyone is unrighteous. Uh, not, there's no, not one. Uh, I love that. Not, no, not one. Uh, none is righteous. And the last verse, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And I think that's key. There's no fear of God before their eyes. You know, and you dive all the way back to chapter one. You talk uh, about um, what Jason covered uh, with uh, the whole paragraph on, you know, the, the decisions of men and women uh, with homosexual lifestyle, followed by the whole paragraph of, in case you forgot that, you know, and think that you're better because that's not you, here's a whole paragraph to say who you are and what you struggle with. We are all sinful. We are all unrighteous. Something has to happen to create and make us righteous. So as, as Paul was saying that, and as he used the Old Testament, these are, there's no fear of God before these people, before their eyes. 
So in your notes, the failure to glorify and honor God is present among both the Gentiles and the Jews. And Paul's hammering this. Guys, he's, this is important. This isn't just, yeah, yeah, I get it, so everyone sins. There's an importance here. The whole of chapter 1, the whole of chapter 2, the whole first part of chapter 3, Paul is continuing to hammer that that right there. The failure to glorify and honor God is present among both Gentiles and Jews. It's among every single person. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the, every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I love that, that the whole world, again, every person is going to be held accountable to God based on the law that he put out. For by the works of the law, and this is key, so by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since, through the law, comes the knowledge of sin. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, Jason covers this often and frequently. Um, you know, the law, uh, you know, basically the law is there and the law is not void. Um, the law actually directs and opens our eyes to the fact that we're sinful. The law is what points out the righteousness of God. It points out the unrighteousness of us. The law, strictly there, is, is, as Paul is saying, it's making everyone held accountable to God. And that no human being will be justified in his sight. So when we try to justify or when we try to live our lives in Christianity under the, the sovereignty of God and we're trying to, well, I'm going to go feed the homeless and I'm going to go do this. And, and hear me, I hesitate saying those things, right? Because that's, that's what we do here. I need you to understand that when we do these things as a church, we're not doing it because there's a morality to it. We're not doing it because it's a moral good thing for us to do. We're doing it because the grace of God, because of what Christ did for us, leads us to want to do those things. That's why we do those things. That's why we go to Flint and we serve and we serve among a church up there and we want to go shovel snow and uh, feed people who don't have food. It's not because that we're going to check it off and that's another moral thing that we're going to do because by the law, no one will be justified in his sight, period. So while I don't want you to then say, well, let's not do any of it. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, obviously, we want you to be involved with that. I just want you to know we're not doing that so you can check it off and say, when it comes at end of the days and I'm standing for God, I can say, yeah, hey, well, you know, I went to the homeless shelter. We threw a Super Bowl party and I watched a football game. That should count for something, right? No. Without Christ, without the cross, we have nothing. Let's get to that part, one of my favorite parts of, of this chapter. Uh, ver- real quickly, verse 21, I want to read this. We're not going to dive into it. Uh, mainly because this is going to be uh, really, it's going to, we're going to dive into it in depth in chapter 7. And I don't want to take all of uh, Jason's funness there. Um, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So this is kind of the culmination of 19 and 20. These three verses kind of come together and he kind of sets it up and says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. So... Hold on to that thought. Teaser, chapter 7. We'll get there. Um, Chapter 22. I mean, verse 22, sorry. The righteousness of God through faith. So prophets bear witness to it, and then it kind of goes in. This is what they're bearing witness to. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You catch that? So it's the righteousness of God. So attain the righteousness that God has. The righteousness is separate from our unrighteousness. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's why we're serving. 
That's why we're doing these things. It's the faith in Jesus Christ that leads us to that. And we get to what I consider the crescendo. For there is no distinction. Here it is, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So chapter 1 describes all these sins and all these things and lifestyles that are outside of God's righteousness, right? And it's directed to people outside of Judaism, non-Jews, Gentiles. Chapter 2, Paul says, now I'm going to hammer the Jews. All right, let's, everyone who's in Judaism, guess what? Circumcision and law, and you're missing it. It's a circumcision of the heart, and it's not a following of the law. It's not a legalistic approach to, to the salvation that you think it is. And we go all the way through chapter 3, and we land on this verse 23, and Paul just says it as plainly as can be, for all have sinned, and I love it. It's not just that we've all sinned. It's not just that we're all under sin or that we're sinful or children of wrath. It's that we've fallen short of the glory of God. Period. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm going to read the next several verses, and I want to go back and, and, and talk about each one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has a faith in Jesus. Let's look at these verses one at a time. Um, verse 23. Um, just kind of, I want to break it down and maybe a little bit, if it's not plain enough in, in a language and uh, maybe some uh, verb uh, vernacular that I, I really kind of associate with. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've done injury to God's glory through our pride and sin. If you just want to say it plainly, we've done injury to God's glory through our pride and sin. You know, um, some of y'all, I've shared this story before. Uh, some of y'all have heard it. Um, if you haven't, if you have heard it, sorry. If you haven't, you know, here it is. Uh, when I was in third grade, uh, <clears throat> I decided I needed to be baptized. Uh, my... Um, uh, went down to the front, um, talked to the pastor, Randy Frazee, at uh, Pantego Bible Church, explained what was going on, went in, got the whole black robe thing going that they had, stepped up into the baptistry that was like, you could have repelled off of that thing, it was so high up. And uh, we're standing outside, and I'm getting ready to walk in the water, and this guy walks up to me, goes, okay, you got your verse ready, right? And I'm like, huh? He's like, your verse, like, you know, Randy's going to ask you, what's an impactful verse in your life? You need to have something to share with him. And he goes, just think of something before you get out there. If you don't have one, just tell them. And so now I'm, you know, third grade, and I'm like, well, you know, okay. Uh, walk into the water, and he's asking me these questions. He asked me about the verse, and the only verse that I could just say that I couldn't get rid of, again, kind of like that Isaiah, was this Romans 3.23. And I shared it with him, and, and I said, Romans 3.23. He goes, kind of looked at me funny. He goes, well, do you know what that verse says? And I'm like, yeah, and we're in front of everybody at the church. And I was like, well, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And he goes, it's kind of a kind of a darker, depressing verse, isn't it? And I was like, well, no, to me, it means I'm not the only one that's messed up, right? And so he and I have a conversation about that, and so I've kind of landed at that all the way up until this week. I've always looked at that as this encouraging verse to me. Yeah, I'm not the only one that messed up. While that's true, and while that is a truth associated with this verse, 
you can't ignore the other truth associated with this verse that it's in the very verse saying that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God that you understand it's your very pride that has kept you from surrendering to God, to his sovereign grace. You look at this in context and basically Paul's attacking the pride of the Jews almost every single verse. We've done injury to God's glory through our pride and sin. Verse 24 fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, an infinitely valuable ransom would be paid to release us from the fellowship of sin. Let me say that again. So verse 24 saying there's an infinitely valuable ransom, right, that would be paid to release us from the fellowship of sin. And I chose that word very carefully, the fellowship of sin, See, we think of fellowship and we think of, you know, hanging out. We think of, uh, you know, life group and our life group. We have fun. We have fun. We hang out. We have a good time. We share meals. We have fellowship. We share fellowship uh, with, with lots of people. And I enjoy that. It's one of the things that drives me in life is having fellowship with people. And so this right here is the exact same word I want to say that by nature, I choose and desire my nature, my sinful nature. I, it's I want to have fellowship with sin. And it's through this valuable ransom of Christ that was paid to release us from that fellowship of sin. Verse 25, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, that this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So basically, I reworded this to, to me. It said the wrath of God would be absorbed by Jesus, remember the valuable ransom that's talked about in verse 24, and turned away from us as he gives himself as a payment by his blood shedding, by his shedding of blood for us. That payment is what turns the wrath of God away. It's not that the wrath of God, he doesn't deserve to be wrathful for us. It's not that because of all this, that all of a sudden now, because where we're at, God's wrath just disappears and it's, it's, it's unrighteous of God to be wrathful and for people who are in sin. God's wrath is still just. That's the part we can't walk away from. God's wrath is just. We have to learn and just reside and, and kind of land in that that wrath of God would be absorbed by Jesus and turned away from us as Jesus gave himself as a payment for us. And then verse 26 and I think sums that up. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Basically, the righteousness of God would be demonstrated and vindicated in one moment. The righteousness of God would be demonstrated and vindicated. So in your notes, in sum, as we read through this, 23 through 26, God's glory is upheld. God's wrath is satisfied. God's ransom is paid. And God's righteousness is demonstrated. See, remember, we go back to verses 5 through 8, where both salvation and judgment are part of God's righteousness. Remember, the gospel does not exclude the judgment of God's judgment of evil. So, so in this act, in the saving act of what Christ did for us, God's wrath was satisfied. His righteousness was demonstrated. 
Paul's saying, as we're landing here in, 20, in, in, in this chapter 3, the whole section here is that there's nothing you can do, nothing you as a human or as a person can do to satisfy God's wrath. To live a righteous life in God's sight. It's only through the blood of Christ that satisfies God's wrath. And it doesn't matter what your former sins were. It doesn't matter what you've struggled with up until this point right now today. None of that matters. God's grace doesn't have any bounds. God's grace will cover your sins. God's grace will cover you. You just have to understand that it's surrendering to his sovereign grace and understanding what he sent his son to do for us. Now, you have to understand this. We're going to back up to chapter 2 briefly. Um, uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, I encourage you to make note of these verses. Um, you know, underline them, score them, write them in your notes, whatever. So, if we understand fully, and we're not going to go into detail, we've, we've, we've done it, please come talk to me. If we understand fully what God did for us in His Son, in sending His Son to die for our sins, and that's, that genuinely lands in our heart, then we begin to understand the goodness of God. The goodness of who He is. In this chapter 2, we stand back, that warrants a response. And it says here in chapter 2, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, right? So again, all these things that he's just listed and all the sins and, you know, the, 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 the guys and girls and the gossip and the affairs and all that, God's, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now listen to this. Or, so this is a better way to look at it, or... Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Now look, God's grace will cover every, each and every sin in your life that you've ever committed. If you've never submitted and surrendered to his sovereign grace, it's going to cover it. It's done. God, Christ died on the cross, and that shedding of the blood is full payment in God's eyes, and it satisfies the wrath that we're owed. That gospel message, that good news, is so powerful that when it resonates in your heart, that goodness and kindness of God, and that, that's basically what's God's kindness, and in His only Son to do that, the only thing that can happen is that leads you to repentance. Now, let me talk briefly about that. It's not that that leads you to make a decision to go in and say, man, I messed up, I'm going to repent, I messed up, I'm going to repent. We know repentance means to turn your back on it, right? Walk the other direction. Let me give you a visual. It's because God's goodness and kindness is so good that the Holy Spirit almost grabs your shoulders and leads you to the cross and to the sovereign grace of God. And it's in that movement, in that moment, that your, your back is turned to your former life. That's when the repentance occurs. It's not an act that you yourself do on your own accord. It's the very goodness of Christ that leads you away from that sin. Because if you're focused on what God's doing and you're focused on what the cross and the gospel message and the goodness, it makes you want to run after that. And, and, and we'll have a deeper conversation at Starbucks. Come find me. I'm not saying that you're not going to slip up on that run and you're not going to mess up or, or sin. It's not that. But I just need you to understand that it's the very goodness of Christ that leads you to repentance. 
It leads you to turn your back away from those sins. So the very descriptions that he gave in the paragraphs in chapter 1 and all the sins and the things that we live in, we can't do anything about that on our own. If we do it on our own, all it is is every day we're just saying, man, I messed up again, I need to not do that. I messed up again, I need to not do that. It's the very goodness of God through his son that pulls us away and leads us away from that sin. This morning, my challenge to myself as I was going through this and as this morning is every day, wake up reminding myself and just reading God's scriptures and remembering what God's goodness was to me. It's when we tell you what we're doing in, the, in, in mission as a church, uh, my prayer is that you don't want to do it to do a check mark. Say, yep, I got one more moral activity racked up, ready to go so I can prove a case later on because you're gonna, <laughs> the case is going to go bad. That trial is going to go bad for you if that's your approach. The point is, surrender to the goodness of Christ, the goodness of God's righteousness that will lead you to wanting to share with others that goodness in your heart. And there's nothing that breaks my heart more than sitting in a Starbucks and doing work and having people, random people, sit at my table and have these conversations and talk about when they obviously ask what I do and then we get into you know, mission and we get into what we're doing. There's nothing that breaks my heart more than when people walk away from that not fully grasping the goodness of God. And some of those are like, oh yeah, yeah, go to church. Man, you wouldn't believe it, man. We, we did, a, we did a, a, soup, a soup kitchen the other day and they start listing off all these things they've done. As soon as they hear that you know, we do mission and that, uh, help work with a team on that, it's like, oh yeah, let me tell you about what all I've done. Some of them telling men, you know, I always ask them, why do you do that? Why'd you go, why'd you go serve there? And the responses are crazy. Um, but some of those responses being like, well, I just want to do something good. Well, I just, I wanted to go, man, those people had no water. I mean, how could I not go get them, get them uh, dig them a well? And I just want to look at them and just say, but that's not the water they need. <laughs> Don't go do these things. Don't come serve with us. You know, we've got the Christmas store coming up. We've got Flint, Michigan coming up again in spring break. Don't sign up and say you want to do that just because you want to do a moral checkoff in your life. One more thing to add. Make sure you understand who, who God is and the goodness of him. And I promise you, when you're living under that, it's going to lead you to wanting to do and serve and share the gospel. All right, let's wrap up. We're going to have the band come up here. Uh, 27 through 31. Uh, I'm going to read this real quick, briefly. Uh, but we're not going to dig into it because, again, Jason's going to unpack that. Uh, really, the theology of these uh, verses he's going to unpack next, uh, next week in chapter 4. Um, but let's read through it. I, I want to make sure um, you're studying now and ready for what he's going to talk about. Then what becomes of our boasting, you know, going back again as Jews, what comes of, it's excluded, but what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that the one is justified from a part, one is justified by faith apart from the works of law, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? This is great for us, obviously, yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, 
Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Uh, the two main points he's making in these verses, again, these points will be unpacked in, in chapter 4, but for your notes, it says, God has demonstrated his, that his saving righteousness is appropriated by faith alone. All right, so his saving righteousness is appropriated by faith alone. And then secondly, righteousness by faith does not cancel out the validity of the law. Okay, now we're going to unpack those next week. Um, so I want you to kind of study through that and be ready, really familiarize yourself with those verses. Um, so what do we do with this today? I'm going to have the band come up now. And uh, that's the question. What do we do with this today? You know, do we realize that without Christ's sin, that we would be slave, or without Christ's sacrifice, we'd be slaves to sin? Do we realize that God's sovereign grace has no limits except the prideful heart that refuses to be led by it? You know, where, where are you at today in that? Have you lived a life where your prideful heart has, has refused to allow the goodness of God to lead you to the sovereign grace that has no limits? I'm going to finish with this paragraph that I kind of wrote up. I was trying to sum up chapter 3 for myself, and um, this is kind of where I landed on it. When it comes to eternal life with our Creator, we have to admit that we're all under sin, children of wrath. We're all under sin from birth, and after seeing what God did for us through His Son, Jesus, and truly understanding the goodness in that act of love, we can't help but be led to repentance of our existing lifestyle and ultimately surrendering to the sovereign grace of God. Remember, the sovereign grace of God, His sovereignty isn't dependent on us, but it's that goodness that leads us to surrender into that. Let's pray this morning. Father God, thank you so much for your encouragement. Thank you so much for your word that teaches us, God, that we need to walk away from moral checklists. We need to walk away from the social evangelism as a church. And um, God, that we can be convicted that we're here to share the gospel and share the truth with those who need it, knowing that your goodness leads all of us, has the option to lead all of us away from our former sins and into your sovereign grace. Holy Spirit, would you take the words, the scripture this morning, the things said, would you just make those applicable to our hearts right now in this moment? Would you take the jumbleness and the things that don't matter out, just bring to our hearts, each of us, the conviction you have this morning for us. Father, we pray people who have surrendered to your sovereign grace, that you would begin chipping away at the pride of those who refuse to be led to you. God, we pray for those that are there this morning that struggle with that. We pray for those that are coming next service, those that we serve in our mission outreaches. We pray that you would begin to chip away at that pride, God. God, that you would make known the goodness that leads us to you.